never let you get lost again, cried the little boy, who was so happy that he gave Happy a kiss on his wet little puppy nose. The end. Whoa, 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 Miss Slippy. The part of the story I don't like is that the little boy gave up looking for Happy after an hour. He didn't put posters up or anything. He just sat on the porch like a goon and waited. That little boy's got to think, you got a pet. You got a responsibility. If your dog is lost, you don't look for an hour and then call it quits. You get your ass out there and you find that fucking dog. You got a bag of chips and there's Colin Powell sitting over there. He looks alone. So I sit down there and talk to Colin Powell and talk to him about... The recession kind of kicked in, and I lost, I guess, about $440,000 in about one week, and that was painful, a very painful part of my life. I've always wondered, if you don't mind helping me figure this out, because I got your LinkedIn profile here. Ready for the hard-hitting question? I could have walked out with all kinds of UFO secrets, all kinds of things, and I never would have been searched. What do we do now? I think the first thing I did was I drunk up all the expensive scotch, the single malt scotch, of course. My name is Bart Wilson. I am the founder and uh, chief marketing officer at Virtual Pictures Corporation. I'm in my uh, 50s, and we have several divisions here at VPix, where we kind of call it for short. We do have the Virtual Pictures Virtual Reality 360 on-demand virtual SaaS platform, and we have an automotive division, which is called MotorStreet360.com, and we also have a third leg on the chair, which is CSI360.net, and that's virtual reality for crime scene reconstruction. It's used by law enforcement, FBI, and they use the software to work with their cameras and tactical cameras that we sell them. And you said there's three companies here? Yeah, that's the three divisions. You've got VPix, which is really primarily for digital asset management, hotels. One of the most popular projects, I guess, right now seems to be the hybrid virtual trade shows. We're being used by a lot of companies that are kind of going back to trade shows, and they use the VPix platform for creating that kind of realism and creating those high touch points so that people can enjoy online as well as physical experiences at a trade show. And then you've got the automotive side, and then you've got the uh, crime scene reconstruction side with CSI 360. Can we make it as simple as we can to, for everyone to understand, I guess, even with the VPix 360, because that's kind of what you reached out. Even though this technology is used in kind of these different industries, let's just stick with the VPix 360 so people can check that out and understand that a little bit better. Yeah, happy to, because that's kind of where our roots are. We obviously forged our roots in the real estate side many years ago. We did this back in 1999. There really wasn't a Netflix subscription. There was not a lot of on-demand subscriptions. We are one of the pioneers that did that. And real estate agents could afford $99 a month and more and wanted to add 3D realism you know, to their existing house listings. And that was a very easy thing for us to do because I had already come out of Eastman Kodak and was one of the guys who worked on digital cameras, Kodak Photo CD, and helped bring a lot of the digital modern age to that company. And I had six years and had a good time doing that. So when I left, I consulted for a couple of years at various companies, but kind of found that the internet was probably going to be transformational, was really going to change things. And I had dabbled in real estate for a little bit had a chance to do some high-resolution photography of multi-million dollar homes in the Santa Fe market where I was at. 
And I realized that creating QuickTime virtual reality and merging that with the net might be something that could be cool. And I hired a couple of engineers. We had developed a working prototype, but we had a lot of feedback from a lot of real estate agents who had used it. But back then, there was no point-and-shoot cameras. We had to teach real estate agents how to use a four-shot rotator and a DSLR camera, Canon and Nikon. So stitching virtual tours was kind of a hassle. So we decided to help them by creating a service bureau environment so the agents could just simply photograph four shots of every room. And we would stitch them together for them and then publish them. And that was the great way for us to do that. As the market matured, you could kind of see 360 images from your iPhone or from your Android device. And as that started to take off, we kept making improvements to our software. We kept getting more customers. And we started to realize that the high-quality virtual tours that we were creating with the DSR were highly marketable. We could charge a lot more money for them because nobody really took the amateur photography very seriously, especially when you're talking to hotel groups like Choice Hotels, SAP, Sheraton, Wyndham, Extra Holidays. They would fire us if we would have showed up with a uh, point-and-shoot, a $300 camera. But that's how the market kind of evolved over the last few years. And that's, I would say, the main legs of VPix, which is the uh, virtual reality services and high-definition virtual reality camera shots that we take for the hospitality groups. Can we make it simpler? I mean, like, I don't understand. You don't make the product. You put stitch together the pictures. If someone takes four pictures in a room, that's kind of how you started. And then you made it 3D. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. Yeah, we started off with simple DSLR cameras, though people were taking four shots of rooms and then putting them together. And we decided that was getting to be a, or seeing it was a frustrating experience for a lot of real estate agents. So we created a service so that we could actually help them. They would shoot. We would produce the virtual tours, and then we would upload them to their accounts. And then that would automatically be listed into the multiple listing service, which is how virtual tours would appear on Realtor.com, Zillow, Trulia, many of the popular sites that people take for granted today because everyone can see slideshows, videos, and interact with 360 experiences of homes before they even go out there and see the actual home in real life. And so how big is your company today? Our company has 11 full-time people. We're in the process of growing 30 here in the next few months, which is stretching us, but that's kind of what happened out of COVID. We were thinking that we would probably be a victim of COVID, and the opposite was actually true. The business blew up so fast, so big, that within just a few months, we had over 4,000 leads in our HubSpot CRM. So that was kind of comforting, but also a problem because it realized that the demand was going to far outstrip what we can provide, and it was time for us to get some working capital and add some more people to our team, which we are still doing. So why do people need you today versus I could maybe understand five or 10 years ago if I'm taking a picture and I didn't really have access to that 3D versus I feel like a lot of camera phones today, I could just kind of go in a circle and make my own 3D tour versus having a company help me out from still pictures and sending it to you. The market has been somewhat the same as far as how the software works, but we have made improvements to it. When they come to us, it isn't really about, hey, look, send us a couple of guys with a couple of point-and-shoot cameras. we got to make some virtual tours, and we're going to slap it into our website. That's not how it works. I need to produce the tours. I need to manage the tours. I need to have e-commerce, and i got to hook all these things up 
there's a whole boatload of people that have to be hired. People like us are not cheap. My job would be somewhere in the $350,000, $400,000 range if I was working for a hotel hospitality group. Take Choice Hotels, one of our customers, for example. They've been with us since 2015. As they add new carpet, you know, new curtains, new bedspreads, wallpaper to their rooms, they have to go out there and shoot all 6,000 hotels all over again. So it's a constant churn year after year. And many companies who are using virtual reality for hospitality are going to follow that same track. Did you go shoot all 6,000 hotels in this case? No. What was interesting is that it had to be kind of co-opetition. We had to reach out to Realtor Vision. We reached out to Google photographers. They were just shooting the raw content. And the raw content was sent back to Choice Hotels to a team of photographers, which would then go and take care of color correction, and would upload everything into the VPix hotel servers. So these hotels already hired independent contractors or whatever. You take these pictures that you need it, then they upload it to your VPix, right? And then that's where you get paid $400,000 from this hotel company to make 3D tours of all these different hotels? Yeah, when you look at the hotel groups and you start looking at where the money is, these are very large multi-year contracts. We actually started off with Wyndham Extra Holidays back in, gosh, that was 2011, I guess. And that was a 100 different resort locations, including Hawaii, Bonnet Creek in Florida. It was a uh, very large contract, but it was going to last at least 18 months to get everything captured. And that contract for us, probably close to $400,000 just for the first 18 months to get that rolling. And then to maintain the servers, to keep the content running, there's annual service license agreements, people to pay for, backups you have to take care of on expensive servers running at Rackspace. There's a lot of moving parts when it comes into the virtual reality because taking the pictures is just the first step. All of us have used Google Maps, right? And we take the car and we move it around, but that's basically what you're doing for inside? Is it that simple to, again, make sure I understand this? It is a complicated process. Virtual reality isn't just for real estate. It's not just for hotels. And as you start taking a look at the virtual reality as more of a medium, it's a different tack than just doing a two-dimensional video. On YouTube, it's cut and dry. You have people who produce the content, and it's the camera guy or the guy who cuts up the film puts some on the floor and decides to put some content into the site. That's what you see. With interactive content, you're the camera guy. You can turn left, you can turn right, you can stare at a certain part of the virtual tour or travel to a different hotel. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it just maybe everyone might understand if you just said it was like virtual reality on Pornhub, right? There's a lot of virtual reality on Pornhub. Ethically, we don't produce anything like that. We don't do games. Are you sure? I, I didn't see you on one of the videos in there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> pretty sure. Yeah. But that's another one of those things that's helped take and help accelerate the market. When you look at the digressing to the porn market, I mean, it helped CD-ROMs take off. It helped VHS take off. Entertainment has now moved into the Oculus. You've got people who can put a machete in one hand and put a laser in the other, and you can go kill a whole bunch of zombies and put on your headsets. I mean, there's a lot of really neat things you can do thanks to virtual reality, and I don't think we've tapped everything that virtual reality can do. Every month, you get a thread from Entrepreneur Magazine, and it shows how the breakthrough has happened in some areas, such as one of our customers called us up a few months ago and said that 
we use the VPIX platform for people who are strapped in a dentist chair. And they're a little anxious because nobody likes to hear that sound of the vzzz. It's uh, scary when you see this guy with a mask coming at you with this very sharp instrument and he says, open wider. They have people who don't want to be put under medication. So they put a VR headset on with a very peaceful scene, the Grand Canyon or Jacques Cousteau take a little swim underneath the ocean and you're seeing beautiful colors and fishes and corals. And at the same time, your teeth are being worked on. So it's a chance for the person to put their mind in someplace else, but they are obviously undergoing a dental procedure. And up until our customer had called us and said that's what they're using our platform for one of their customers, I had never heard of that. And I thought that was pretty amazing. Have you ever looked up something naughty on the web that you wouldn't want others to know about? You know, something like how to subscribe to this very podcast. Well, I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the US can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, and even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit my exclusive link, which is expressvpn.com slash millionaire, and you get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash millionaire. Check out expressvpn.com slash millionaire to learn more. Many of you have probably heard about how the market for collectibles, including NFTs, have gone crazy over the last year. The problem, though, is that even if you wanted to invest in some of these assets, the price tags are simply out of reach for most investors like myself. Well, don't worry, because Otis is here to the rescue. Our podcast is sponsored by Otis, and Otis is an investment platform that makes it possible for almost anyone to invest in shares of cultural assets. Here's how it works. You download their app and sign up for free. They have over 100 items available for you to invest in, from rare collectibles like sports cards, comics, and video games, to NFTs, contemporary art, and even rare sneakers. Shares usually start around 10 bucks. Plus, they add new assets every week. You can then earn a potential return if Otis sells the underlying asset for more than the price that the item was dropped at, or by selling your shares to other Otis members on Otis's real-time trading platform. Two of the assets I regularly check are the sneakers and NFTs section. If you know me, I like to stay up to date on business culture, and this app lets me check in on the price of those hip investments so I can relate to those younger hip entrepreneurs. Right now, Otis is offering listeners of this show a free share when they fund their account. All you have to do is go to withotis.com forward slash millionaire and sign up to get your free share. That's W-I-T-H-O-T-I-S dot com forward slash millionaire. 
Again, that's withotis.com forward slash millionaire. For more on risk and disclaimers, go to withotis.com forward slash legal forward slash disclaimer. All right. And so you've been doing VPIX for about 11 years? 11 years with this company. We had a previous company that we had run called Voyager Communications. And that kind of died a painful death because in 2008, 2009, the real estate market crashed. That was Black Friday for a lot of us in this country when Wall Street kind of went belly up for a little while. Yeah, let's just make this as easy as we can chronologically because I just want to understand. So VPix, it's been about 10 years you've been working on it. You said you got your 11 people now about to go to 30. I think we understand a little bit more now that I integrated Pornhub that we all understand virtual reality is a little bit more different than just a 360 picture, right? And I think we can all use our imagination there and that maybe you star in some of those videos there. But I think that gets us an overall idea. But why don't we rewind it to even earlier? So we chronologically, we can take it from what point in the story do you think is the best? You coming out of college or tell me what year and how old you were? My college was really kind of off and on. I mean, I went to uh, College of the Air Force and was going for avionics, aeronautics, general applied sciences. And as computers started to come out, I wanted to go back and learn more about graphics. So I uh, got out of the Air Force, obviously went to Kodak. And when I found myself back in New Mexico... Well, one second. Now you're just jumping around. And remember when I said, let's figure out what year and how old you were. So when did you go to the Air Force? Were you 18? I was 18. Yep. When I got out, boy, that was what, mid-80s. So 85, 86. Okay. Because this helps when you say this, because then you're like, computers are getting hot. But I mean, I don't know what that means. So 18, you're mid-80s. And okay, I take it from there. Yep. Mid-80s, Air Force for a little while. And motorcycle accident in 1990 kind of took me out of the Air Force. And not long after that, I started to find myself thinking more about computers. 1990, 1991 is uh, when I picked up computers self-taught and got then picked up by Eastman Kodak, Apple Computer, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, before the rest of the history, the motorcycle accident. Let's talk about that. The Dallas accident kind of changed my life a little bit because I got a concussion, pretty hard hit in the head. And my wife and family kind of said, you seem a little different. That hard hit in my head for some reason, kind of kicked my math and scientific part of my brain into gear, which is why I decided to find myself moving towards computers. And that's the time when the Macintosh publishing revolution was just kind of getting in a full swing. It was starting to become a very different landscape, graphics, publishing, programming. It came to me very, very naturally, whereas before it wasn't. I was just a graphics, visual arts person. With the accident, were you in the hospital for a while? I was in the hospital for a while. This was about two weeks of my life, which I consider missing time. I don't remember much about it. It was a blank spot. But not long after that blank spot, I started picking up some books on computers. Okay. Yeah, real quick. We don't want to put people to sleep about books and computers. I want to talk about the accident a little bit more. So what happened? I was just getting off of LBJ freeway, turning on to a smaller street, and I don't remember anything. The police officer who picked me up out of the street behind me was the one who said that the car had turned right in front of me and the motorcycle had hit the passenger side and just kind of collapsed like an accordion. I was thrown over the handlebars. I landed into his windshield, took out his windshield. As he hit the brakes, my body was ejected and thrown at a higher rate of speed. My knee had clipped his hood ornament, ripped it open. My helmet popped off and I was literally in the highway. 
literally just middle of the highway. The officer described a lot of blood, you know, coming out of my mouth, nose, and ears, and thought I was dead. Emergency picked me up, and I go to Presbyterian Hospital, and like I said, I literally wake up 10, 14 days later, seeing my family in front of me, and I still don't remember if that was a dream or a, a fog or whatever, because it was, you were drugged up. You're on a lot of painkillers, and I remember going home, feeling very different, did not really want to go back and touch graphics, but I didn't know what was going to happen next. I did have orthoscopic surgery a few months later, and then, like I said, I find myself at working at Apple Computer. I find myself doing computer work, and then I get picked up by Eastman Kodak to start launching a bunch of these cool digital cameras and working on fun projects like Photo CD and doing very advanced things. My life was literally transformed in literally six months from being a graphic artist to working on silkscreen printers, then jumping myself into a computer world with digital cameras and things that I had never really touched or seen before. It was very transformational. Yeah. So looking back at the motorcycle accident, I mean, while all of us have things that happen in life that sucks that it happens, but maybe it was a good thing. Do you wish it never happened? I don't know how or why things, I don't believe in the manifest destiny that things just kind of happen for a purpose. I just think sometimes bad things will happen. And I think what you do next can be transformational. So for me, I went through it. It was painful, but I'm not exactly glad. I said I went through it, but I am thankful that whatever the opportunity was, I had a lot of time to go and get a bunch of books from Borders. And I had a lot of time to read. And the internet wasn't really there yet. We had CompuServe. We had America Online. You got mail. We had Prodigy. We had Earthlink. That's it. It wasn't really there yet. So I spent a lot of time doing reading. And as I started reading, I found myself moving more towards science, computers and graphics, and digital cameras. My dad was one of the guys who put a lot of the NASA camera stuff up on the Apollo moon mission. So my dad was still alive and he gave me some encouragement to kind of talk to some folks at NASA and do some electronic things with some of the military that I used to touch base with at Hall Air Force Base. But I found myself moving down that road towards digital and I wasn't sure why. I felt in my heart that was the right direction. That was the right thing to do. So I'm thankful for going down that road, but I certainly wish I could put that painful part of the motorcycle accident behind me. I didn't need that. <laughs> but, it, you know, like I said, it, it put me in a whole different course. And you said you landed a job at Apple afterwards because you were in Dallas at this point in time. Was that job still in Dallas at Apple? Yeah. And it was really more of mentorship than a job. The job kind of came in from you being there. Apple has or had a presence, a big presence in Dallas at a place called Infomart. And Apple had a huge office on the third floor at Infomart and was responsible for bringing a lot of the technology that Apple Computer was inventing in Cupertino. And there were very large Macintosh users. The Dallas Macintosh user group, or DEMA, even today is still a very popular large group. And a bunch of very nice people there run that organization. But they were evangelizing a lot of the uh, things coming out of Cupertino. We had companies there in Dallas that were building software like Alsys. They were the ones behind products like PageMaker, Freehand, other things of that nature. And you could come to Apple Computer and learn a lot. They have guest speakers, Kai Kawasaki, other folks would stop by, and we would have very inspirational people teaching what they're doing with the Macintosh computer and things that we could do with it. So it was a good source of inspiration. It was almost like a mini Cupertino was right there in the heart of Dallas. And I think that was a big part of 
what inspired me, but I got tons of contracting jobs for various companies. Chilton TRW, credit reporting agency, I did a lot of work with them as a contractor. Did a lot of work with Kinko's. Before Kinko's FedEx, it was just Kinko's. And they had a big, huge desktop publishing opportunity. And I started working and consulting with several of the Kinko's branches there in Dallas. So I think that really helped accelerate my learning because people needed short-term graphics, postcards, flyers, mail merges of Excel, Microsoft Word, and Apple had all kinds of products. The Apple LaserWriter back then, the Macintosh 2, Macintosh 2 CI, was very popular platforms back then. And that's what really attracted me was this explosion of technology and software and so many job opportunities that would kind of come through Apple Computer. You just had to be there. And as you were there, if you're a superstar and you're showing things off, eventually good things came to us. And that's how I got involved with Kodak at that opportunity. So from Apple, and then we understood that your dad in the digital photography is starting to make sense kind of how you got into this. What's the next stage in your life or I guess even work life to try to figure out where we go from here, from working at Apple in Dallas to where's the next stop? From Apple Computer to Kodak, obviously for six, seven years there. Was that in Dallas? No, that was actually in Rochester and Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. This was back from 1991 through 1996. That was early, mid-90s and kind of a blur, some of it, because there was so much to do. During the days at Kodak, we had created a digital platform that was one part consumer, but I wasn't really enjoying that part. I found myself moving more towards the professional market, and I started spending a great deal of time in Rochester. For about one week every month, I was up at Rochester, and I was learning Kodak LBT, a Kodak digital jukebox. I was learning how to install these things at the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. I had installed a lot of the classified stuff into the Pentagon during the Clinton administration, and the Navy uses or had used most of our technology for war games, simulations, scanning of a lot of military images. So I guess the ones that you installed on the Pentagon, right, was that external or internal? That was internal. You had to get to the Pentagon. We had a corporate apartment at Crystal City in there, and... I would stay there for a few weeks at a time and then go install Kodak imaging equipment and teach a bunch of people at the Navy Department how to use them. That was my job. Okay. So I thought you were setting up cameras and stuff inside because I'm wondering, do you know why there's not any cameras of an airplane actually hitting the Pentagon? I was wondering if you had any insight onto that. No, I don't. I uh, never was responsible for the live cameras that were surrounding the Pentagon, but I can certainly tell you that the security that I would certainly deem as adequate or inadequate was really kind of simple. I mean, as long as I had a badge, I could walk into almost any of the gates in the Pentagon. We're talking early 1990s now. This is before 9-11. And you got a couple of guys sitting at a gate. They check your badge. You walk in. You walk out. And I would walk in and walk out with the same equipment. But not a lot of the people would check me thoroughly. I could have walked out with all kinds of UFO secrets, all kinds of things from the Pentagon, and I never would have been searched. So I would say that security back in the 90s, the Pentagon was a little surprisingly thin, <laughs> to kind of put it mildly. But I met a lot of nice people. I met Colin Powell. I did meet the president. I met a lot of great people 
just by hanging out there. And I was doing my work on the weekend. So you don't have a lot of traffic there at the Pentagon, but you do have a lot of people that say hi to you. You kind of go to the break room and you pop in 50 cents for a cup of coffee and you get a bag of chips. And there's Colin Powell sitting over there and he looks alone. So I sit down there and talk to Colin Powell and talk to him about his time at the Pentagon and his views on politics and world affairs. And he wants to know why I'm there. And I said, I'm putting in a whole bunch of Kodak stuff down the hall at the Department of the Navy. It was a fun time of my life. I really enjoyed, I think, the travel, being at the Pentagon, because I felt I was doing something useful, and being former military. I thought it was a great way to serve my country again. But I'm working, obviously, for Eastman Kodak, and I'm doing things that are going to benefit more military members. It was a sense of pride and accomplishment, and I'm getting a paycheck, and I'm meeting some super nice people I thought I would never meet in my life. Oh, yeah. And I guess you said the security was kind of lax in the 90s, but obviously in 9-11-2001, when there's no photography of an actual airplane hitting the Pentagon, I just obviously it was kind of lax right then too, right? That The only image that they could get was from a gas station and it looked like a missile actually hit the Pentagon and not an actual airplane. But if we had more video footage, we'd be able to kind of prove it anyhow. So that sounded like an interesting point in your life, like you said. So you did that up through 96? Yeah, 96. And then right around there, I take kind of a break from Kodak. I realized that a lot of the things we're doing at Kodak were probably not going to work. And it primarily was because of Kodak's constantly wavering from digital being consumer professional. We kind of saw the prosumer, the growth of digital kind of move towards the middle ground. But Kodak was just a little afraid, I think, to make a full commitment to going digital, which is why Konica, Fuji, many other companies, including Polaroid, started to eclipse what Kodak was doing, even though Kodak was the inventor of the digital camera. Steve Sasson is the uh, father of the digital camera, and he invented this thing back in the 70s when it was a really strange, funky blue box, and it produced an image that would have to be recorded to a cassette tape. It wasn't a digital hard drive. Kodak kind of did a few things and then stopped and went back to film and then went back to digital. And I got in at Kodak just at the time when Kodak realized there was something they could do by moving into the photojournalism market. And that's when things really picked up because I had spent some time at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, worked with the good Dr. Doug Ford Ray, who had created a new program that Kodak had funded most of it. It was called the Electronic Times Photojournalism Workshops. And that was a lot of fun because we were able to go to one new city every single year, and we would handpick, hand-invite 50 journalists and 50 photojournalists and have them come to this event. And out of the 50-50, we kind of narrowed it down to the top 20, 25 people. So we ended up getting to a group of 30, 35 men and women who were journalists and or photojournalists from a newspaper, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the Dallas Morning News. And we would take away their film camera. I would give them a digital camera and say, use your same lenses, use the same ISO settings, but there's no film. I would hand them a little thick square cartridge and it was a compact flash. And I say, this is where your images will be stored. And it was kind of funny because you can get everyone to get to that point and say, okay, got it. Where's the film go? Bob, there's no film. Put film out of your head. See this cartridge? That's your film. <laughs> Repeat after me. We would do this normal process of a whole week. We would have people go out and do the normal news. We'd have people do sports. We'd have people do human interest stories. And we would publish their newspaper on an electronic format, which Kodak was partially involved with. 
And there was no big cameras doing mechanicals and paste-up graphics and things. It was all done electronically. And then on Thursday, we would take these cartridges, PsyQuest or Zip cartridges, and we would overnight them to a newspaper so they could run the newspapers. Because on Friday, we would get together for the award ceremony. We would learn what we've done for the whole week is now in a tabloid or a broadsheet newspaper. And we'd hand those things out. We'd sign them. We'd make hugs and we would promise to stay in touch. But we were transforming the newspaper industry. At that time, we have 1,756 daily broadsheet newspapers in this country. Today, I think it's 800. It's like less than half of what we had. And when was this? This was in the 90s. This was 95, 96, 97. Okay. Were you still working at Kodak? I was consulting through Kodak in 97, 98 timeframe, but I officially left in 96. I had been involved with three of their annual Electronic Times workshops. And it continued for a few more years until Kodak no longer wanted to fund it. But it was like a Google project. Once you learn what you need to learn from these things, you don't need to keep funding it anymore because the newspaper industry was used to buying technology and these things from Kodak. So that was uh, mission accomplished. Are you struggling, struggling to find a business checking account that fits your needs as a small business owner looking for a checking account that does more than hold your money? We all know those traditional financial institutions neglect the needs of small business owners just like you. They all charge higher fees. And as a business owner, that comes out of your bottom line. Well, you don't have to worry about any of that anymore because Nearside is helping small businesses save money. My favorite features are their three layers of cashback. They got one, the universal cashback, which is 1% cashback on any purchase made on the card. Number two, you got premium cashback, where you can earn up to an additional 5% on select business vendors like Shopify, Amazon, Walmart, and Home Depot, and everyday expenses like gas stations, restaurants, hotels, and car rentals. And number three, they got the easy savings cash back, which MasterCard has partnered with tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S. to bring you up to 10% off select purchases. With Nearside, there's no minimum balance requirement. Nearside Business Checking helps you grow your business by saving you money and providing valuable rewards and discounts. With Nearside Rewards, you can earn cash back automatically on all the business purchases you already make. And they offer seamless online banking experience for on-the-go entrepreneurs. And you can check it out right now. Go check out the Nearside app in both the Google Play Store and Apple Store. To learn more about Nearside and how they can help your business, go to nearside.com forward slash inspiration and sign up for a Nearside business checking account or click the link in the description below to sign up for your Nearside business checking account. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I want a better gut health and an optimized immune system. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So all the things. See, I consume my healthy scoop of Athletic Greens every single morning. So I get my day started off right. With Athletic Greens, you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him over $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutritional routine on your own. 
Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Green is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So after Kodak, you said stop funding the Electric Times workshops so like 1998. You're kind of working with Kodak, but you weren't. So you're just, it's almost like a freelancer for those two years. What did you end up doing from there? During those two years, I did a little work back and forth with some newspapers as a consultant. I also went back to my roots and went back to a uh, advertising agency in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was a lot of fun because I was able to bring in some of the tools and skills I had from working at Kodak and interactive multimedia. And that was fun. So I did several things for a couple of years. I hung out with some of these high net worth angel investor networks like the Bay Area, Bay City Angels in San Francisco, Gathering of Angels, a couple of other entrepreneurial groups of VCs and high net worth individuals were forming these little groups. And this was right on the hinge of the dot bomb crash before the dot bomb crash and then the dot bomb crash and then what came after. So I was starting to find myself being asked to present and talk about Kodak's technology and where I saw the market moving and then doing my own startup. And the rest was kind of history. Tell us about your own startup, because to this point, you had not started your own business. So I think this is the point where a lot of people are getting interested. It's interesting to hear kind of the backstories and how you evolve. And eventually, once you take the hurdle and go ahead and start your own company. So what made you want to start your own company? It was really being at the right place at the right time. Santa Fe, New Mexico is not exactly Silicon Valley. Santa Fe, New Mexico is a real nice melting pot of artists. You've got your George O'Keefe's, you've got your Ansel Adams museums and galleries, and you have all these people who are there in Santa Fe. And a lot of people there of means, they're wealthy people. They have expensive multi-million dollar homes north of Santa Fe. A lot of Hollywood celebrities are there, and I started dabbling back into real estate. As I did that, I noticed that Gene Hackman, Shirley MacLaine, and many others had homes there, and eventually, some of these people like to sell them. I got a phone call from a high-end luxury broker that said, we have a celebrity home that needs to be photographed rather discreetly, and I said, who is it? And they said, Shirley MacLaine, and can you professionally photograph her home? And it was interesting because people who have expensive stuff in their home, especially hanging on the walls, they're very private or want to be private. And this was one of those kind of like Western shootouts where this digital land grab was growing very quickly, especially for people who wanted to buy a multi-million dollar home in a great place like Santa Fe. And in this case, Shirley MacLaine was selling her townhome in Tasuki, which is just north of the Santa Fe Opera. I got called in to photograph her home in 360 because it was cutting-edge technology, and I had produced a very nice virtual tour for her home, but she didn't want to have a virtual tour online where everybody could see it. So we had invented some 
software to lock up the virtual tour so that only select buyer's agents could actually stop in and actually see everything she has in her place. And that was a lot of fun to shoot the tour for her. And we produced a number of virtual tours for other Hollywood celebrities, software, sports, famous sports people. And that got to be something I was getting very well known for doing. Well, one day I find out that I've got so much work to do, it was time for me to start hiring some people. Next thing, you have a company. <laughs> so we created a company called Voyager. Who is we? Because you keep saying we. Yeah, I had a couple of friends from Silicon Valley that worked at Google and some friends from Kodak that were giving me some consulting tips and tricks. And a good friend, Dr. Carl Baer, no longer with us today, but I had a lot of support from friends and people who really kind of said, hey, it's time for you to start a company. You just can't keep doing all this work by yourself. And I was running 80-hour work weeks, processing photos and doing high-end virtual reality tours, stitching all these images together. Remember, in 1999-2000, when you're in the real estate market, this was really like stone knives and bear claws. It was so ancient compared to the tools we have today that in 2000, it was very difficult to get this interactive content into websites. I mean, we only had flaming logos. There was no flash, at least it hasn't really evolved. And a lot of the interactivity that we have today, we just didn't have 21 years ago. And it was my job to push the envelope, and I did. And then eventually I find myself with a couple of employees, some software developers. And like I said, the rest kind of moved on from. And just again, going to the starting point, because again, this is important for anyone who's getting started, just to get a feel of where you were at that point in time. I'm doing timeline. It looks like you're about 29 years old. Did you have any money saved up? Did you need any money to get this thing started? Because it doesn't, I guess it depends on how much, if you're creating the software first, but you know, if you're just going to take pictures at first, then it didn't seem like you would need much money in like a service-based business. I mean, you need, obviously, you need to stick with it. I mean, for me, it really wasn't about the money. It was about the passion. Right. But how much money did you need to start? That's the one I want to make sure that we understand we're on the same page. That, like, did you need $0? Did you need 10000 100000 Did you need anything? No, I didn't, I didn't really need anything except the cameras that I already had. So if someone is going to jump into this, I mean, you got a few thousand dollars worth of cameras and lenses, of course. But at the end of the day, it does come around passion and skills. And once you find yourself getting to the point of, now I need to go bring on some people, the nice thing is, if you're getting so much work coming in, you find yourself paying those new people with the jobs and the money that's already coming in. So this is where the word bootstrap, I think, comes to mind. Because if you have the ability of bringing in work and you have the ability of sharing the risk, the love comes from paying people from the jobs you have coming in. So there's not a lot of risk to me having to go in and break a few piggy banks and get things rolling. But advertising does cost money. The nice thing about the internet 20, 21 years ago is a lot of this stuff was just free. Google didn't go public until what? 2003, 2004, I guess. So it was still an old West kind of like a shootout. What's happening out there as far as getting advertising? A lot of that stuff was cheap to free. There was no Facebook. There was no LinkedIn per se. There was a lot of things that we were able to get for free. And word of mouth in a small town is all you needed. You go out and be at the right place at the right time by joining the Chamber of Commerce. There's some money, 200 and some odd dollars a year, right? You joined the Santa Fe 
Association of Realtors as an associate member. You don't have to be a real estate agent, but there are vendors that join the Chamber of Commerce and they get exposure. My logo was on the multiple listing service website and we were listed as a high-end professional photographer. You get two phone calls a day, three phone calls a day from real estate agents going, hey, I saw the job you did for French and French. I got a $2 million home over here in uh, Hyde Park Estates. Can you come shoot this house for me? So it became a domino effect. Knowing where to advertise is just priceless. And if you have a product or a service that you're offering and you can produce it in volume, obviously your volume is going to be limited to it's just BART. And when it got to the point where I couldn't handle the business anymore, your friends and your wife says, hey, get some help. Okay, I did. And I brought in more people and I was able to pay those people, fortunately, from the money we were getting from the existing customers. Okay. This is what made it successful and got you here to today, right? Is that, I mean, finding the customers, finding the clients and you were... Luckily, right there, right in the beginning, like you're saying, when the internet was getting kind of started, that your clients who needed real estate pictures, you're front and center there. So they knew how to contact you. So it seems like everything else kind of followed in place that it was just basically a service-based business at this point in time, right? People would just call you and you would either go take pictures or somebody else would, and then you would not use your own personal software. You had other software that you would use to put together these 360 videos. Yeah. And we also had to write our own software. And that's when I realized now I got to spend the big bucks. Right. But real quick, before you say you started your own, you didn't start that right away, right? Because I mean, there's only so much you can do right when you start. So again, I don't want to get this mixed up with anyone who's listening right now that I imagine it took a couple of years maybe before you started making a transition. Because obviously there is a transition at some point because we heard about your company at the beginning of the interview, you know, what you do today that you have your own software and whatnot. But again, it was just service-based. So I think this is important for any entrepreneurs who's listening service-based businesses don't cost really anything to get started. Kind of start there and then you can evolve if you start making money. But the main thing is, if you, especially any business, is that you got to find your clients and where they are. And you were smart enough to kind of figure that out. That's true. I had some money in the bank, so I didn't really have to you know, worry about a job. So for me, it was about the passion. So photography was the passion. And then when I realized that all of a sudden, two or three jobs per month was turning into two or three jobs per week, self-realization, maybe it's time to get some help. And that was the story for me. And so how long till you started making your own software? I started making my own software, I guess, right around 2001, when I realized that I had to have things to connect the virtual tours to other multiple listing service organizations that were out there. And that's when I started learning about middleware. And I had studied middleware by jumping into some software user groups, took a sabbatical, took some time off, and went back to Apple Computer and hung out with a little place called the Apple Developer University. Well, why did you do that? Well, I wanted to go back and learn more of what I didn't know. I've always liked learning, and I find that most entrepreneurs like me who tend to really thrive have one thing in common. We have to constantly learn new things. We're, we're always a student. We're always trying to pick up how to take what we're doing and do it better. And then just when you think you've got it, keep learning. And you have to have that discipline because if you're not learning things, sooner or later you wake up and you find yourself so far behind that you don't even know if you can catch up. So having to stay current on what's trending software and listening to other people 
who can say these are exciting breakthrough trends in technology, like in 1999. I mean, there was no Netflix. A lot of these things just weren't out there. So all these gems all got started from people like me who were doing brave new things and taking huge risks by trying something new. But for me, I didn't really want to make educated guesses. I wanted to go out and get the training so that when I make the next step, and I do have to spend $5,000 or $10,000, what's the best tool for me to be learning today so I can be building value tomorrow? And for me, going back to Apple Computer was taking workshops and take one-week and two-week workshops at Apple Developer University was very important and also helped me shape the business that I had because there were a lot of software developers at Google and Apple and Microsoft, and they're all there in Silicon Valley. And I hung out there for a few months and learned what I needed to learn, hired some software developers, and we built a lot of code. I constantly went from Santa Fe back to the Bay Area just to hang out with some sharp software developers and form some great relationships with some contractors, which helped me shape the software that we were building into something that became the first Trulia, the first Zillow. We built that in 2003. Okay. Well, that's a couple of years later. But again, let's see if we can be more concise on these answers, if you don't mind. So Santa Fe to Cupertino, you said you went back to work with Apple or whatever, but it was only for like a month or two. You still had your business going in Santa Fe or people still running it, even if you took a couple of weeks off or whatnot? I had photographers that were still doing the work. Yes, I was able to work long distance thanks to sharing files across the net. I was able to continue the business, but I was able to stay in California for weeks at a time as I was learning how to build new software and improve the processes that we already had. And did you drive from Santa Fe to Cupertino or did you fly? All the time. Yep. I, I'm a big fan of driving. <laughs> I can listen to a bunch of Tony Robbins self-improvement tapes on the way out and the way back. and Or this podcast. Or this podcast. Exactly. Well, because I'm looking, I figure like Santa Fe to Cupertino didn't sound like that far, but it's saying it's a 17 hour drive. So that's pretty far. It is. And I would do it in two days. I would do seven or eight hours. I would go through Flagstaff. I would go down through California and I'd find a small town, Red Roof Inn, crash for the night and then wake up the next. So five-star hotels. Yeah, exactly. But I would go to a Red Roof Inn, you know, Hojo, Howard Johnson, something affordable. And I would get up the next day and ask for the best place to get a great Denver omelet or something. And I'd hang out for a couple hours in town and I'd relax and stretch and then eventually get back in the car and continue my drive. Yeah, because I mean, even from my place, I looked at, because I drove through there last year, did a road trip, went to Santa Fe from my house is only 24 hours and I'm on the East Coast. And anyone who doesn't know, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. So it's almost the same amount. It's only like basically eight more hours for you to get to California. I just, I bet a lot of people imagining to me, I'm like, oh, it's probably, I don't know, 10 hours away or something like that. But yeah, definitely it's still a two day trip. So you're out there and it seems like smart of you to kind of figure out that you need to be with developers and try to figure out, I guess, your next thing that you wanted to do that you wanted to learn. You decided you're going to do software. Then you said to 2003, you actually finished the software. Yeah, it took us a few years to put the parts together and well, we were starting to get... Yeah, did you need funding for this part? Because I know you said originally you didn't, obviously, but how about this part? Because this is something that seems like it might cost money up front before you start getting revenue. It did. Yeah, this is where you have to look at bringing on a full-time PHP developer for 50, 80,000 a year. And I didn't have it. 
So I had talked to a few people and got some interviews rolling. I interviewed a couple of folks that I thought were really going to be the right people and learned about them and found out what their skills were and told them we're going into a real estate kind of a hodgepodge conglomerate that was going to be an open MLS. And I had met some very interesting people. I met David Berry from San Francisco. He was a real estate attorney. And I also met Glenn Kelman, now a very famous name in the real estate market with Redfin, CEO of Redfin. And we had together formed a consortium that was the Open MLS Consortium, a private little group of people that were trying to do very interesting things with the multiple listing service, like creating one server that would allow anyone from across the United States to publish their homes and their virtual tours into one product. And we had got there about two years before Zillow did. And we got a lot of customers to sign up for free because it was a freemium. And anybody who was a real estate agent could sign up for free. But they could access real estate photographers like me for a fee and hire them and photograph their homes, which included virtual tours. And then it just started taking off. That whole business model got so successful that we found ourselves making a half million dollars plus per year. And it was just two or three guys in a leaky boat. And we were doing great with this. And then just before the real estate crash in 2008, we had grown to almost a million homes online. And about 30,000 real estate agents were using us off and on. And it was painful. You had to pull the plug because the recession kind of kicked in. And I lost, I guess, about $440,000 in about one week. And that was painful, a very painful part of my life. I had so much money tied up in real estate software. We had employees. We had most of my money tied up into the entire organization, but nobody was paying their bills. And unfortunately, I still got to pay the bills for the employees until we did the pink slips. And I was paying the bills for the hosting. I was paying bills for the insurance. I was paying bills for overhead. It's called SGNA. <laughs> and that was a big number. Once you realize that nobody's going to be paying your bill thanks to the recession, you have to face the grim reality of, well, what do we do now? And I think the first thing I did was I drunk up all the expensive scotch, the single malt scotch, of course. And then when you start switching to the blended scotch, the cheap stuff, you realize that I can't keep doing this either and it's no fun. So I decided to just slowly pull the plug and kind of circle the wagons and I was depressed for a week. And then Carl Bear my friend from Emory University up there in Boston, he was the director and professor of entrepreneurial studies and a good friend of mine. And he was in Albuquerque and he had heard the news and wanted to make sure I was okay. And I said, no, I'm not okay. And he said, do you have time next week for lunch? I said, sure. And he came up to Santa Fe and we went out to his favorite little Mexican restaurant. And he said, tell me what happened. And I told him the same story I told you. And he said, well, let's get out of here. Let's get back home. And I have something I want you to try. And it's going to be something that's going to fix your problem. But I want to show you a few things. All right. So we went home and he told me to get my checkbook. And I said, Carl, if you're asking for a check, I can't afford anything. He says, no, this is not a check for me. It's a check for you. I said, what? He said, hear me out. Take your checkbook. I want you to write yourself a check. Not a huge check, not a small check, but something that you're going to cash in the bank 
and it's going to be meaningful to you. Maybe you want to pay off your mortgage. Maybe you want to pay off your credit cards. Something meaningful, but you got to do this in 12 months or less. And if you don't cash that check, your brain has to associate you're going to get cancer and die. You have to cash that check, win, lose, or draw. I said, okay. So he turned around. I wrote myself a number on the check, and he told me, fold it up, put it in your wallet. Every time you go to Safeway, you're going to see that check. Every time you go to the gas station, you're going to see that check. That is going to serve as a reminder. You have a deadline that you owe yourself. You have to complete that deadline. So I got a very heavy dose of Tony Robbins from my friend Carl Bear. And every day I would look at that wallet, I would pay my bills, and I would certainly see the check. What I didn't realize, though, is I was pulling myself back up and trying to put myself back on the horse, but I got a very healthy dose of advice from Carl Bear. And the long story short is 11 weeks, and two days later, I cashed that check. And that check was for $125,000. And that's the day that I had moved the old company to Colorado, and we formed a new company, and I was able to put that money onto a beautiful $400,000 home, which today is worth about $1 million. And had I not received that kick in the ass from Carl Bear, I would probably not be here. And how long did it take you to make it happen with the check? 11 months, two days. <laughs> I kept track with my iPhone, and I went back and told Carl, I said, hey, thanks for your advice, buddy. And he says, see? What do I know? But again, he's got a PhD. He's a professor at Emory. He teaches entrepreneurial finance. Really wonderful coach. He's kind of like the coach out of the book, Built to Sell. He is that guy. And so he put money in your account and then you were able to just take it out? I was able to put my own money into my own account because I was able to focus on the things that were important. I was able to save some money and focus on what I need to get done to get back on the horse. Bart, that was a joke, by the way, just so you know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> Most people do. So we had your downfall, and then it seems like things are going well again. What year are we in right now? That was 2011. It took me a while to get that deposit done. But like I said, in 2009, I wrote the check, obviously, and I did the house a year later. I started a new company in 2011, which was called VPix. But which is the one we start, yeah, we talked about in the beginning. But it's all been kind of the same thing, even though I think it, we all see how it kind of evolved, even though it was a different company, right, that we're kind of the same genre of what we're doing, right? It was a little different in the sense that we stopped focusing on one channel. We were only focused on the real estate channel. I realized that virtual reality was going to impact other markets. And that's the part that got exciting for me because I realized that like other investors, we tend to put a little bit of money in four or five horses. Some of these horses are not going to win the race. And that's just the law of averages. You can't cry about spilled milk. So you have to take whatever money you put in to diversify your portfolio. And I took that approach with the old company and the new company. So with the new company, I decided to say, what if we took the software engine and treated it like a Hemi engine? It's like Chrysler. You can take some of the same engines and you can drive a truck, you can drive a Durango, you can drive a car. And we wanted to have a VR engine that would apply towards hotels. 
we wanted to have an engine that would apply towards both commercial and residential real estate. And then accidentally, we got involved with crime scene reconstruction. But all of this kind of happened on purpose. I had to wait until Steve Jobs got on stage in January of you know 2010 and shows the first generation iPad to the world. And the day after he did that, we announced VPix, which was the first HTML5 virtual tour from Apple Computer. And as Guy Kawasaki once said, let a thousand flowers bloom. And following some of the advice from Guy Kawasaki and other people who I had been following as my mentors, I took all that advice and gambled everything. Because the very next day, when we announced VPix on the tsunami wave of Apple Computer, our phones lit up like Christmas trees. Our first phone call was from Wyndham Extra Holidays, and it turned into a $379,000 sale in one week. Two months later, I got a phone call from the FBI, and I thought this was going to be a scary conversation, but the FBI needed some training software for folks going through Quantico, and they bought one of our servers. And two months later after that, we have a couple of retired sheriff officers in Florida saying, hey, we've seen your software out there for real estate. I wonder if you guys can modify it for crime scene reconstruction. I said, sure. Can you get on the plane and, you know, fly up here? And they did. Six months later, we created a third server for CSI360.net. And it's just for law enforcement agencies who have to recreate crime scenes. And they do it in 360. So I took the advice from Carl. Obviously, a year later, I get what I'm looking for. I then find my way moving north, and a year later, I launch another company, and I fold all of the assets from the old one into the new one, but I realize that this transformational technology that Apple Computer can probably launch a few boats, and that's the whole thing. The rising tide of Apple's new platform did actually give rise to floating quite a few boats, because a lot of people were writing software for the iPads, and we were one of them. So once again, I was in the right place at the right time, but I had to get a you know, strong kick in the ass from a friend that said, Bart, snap out of it. You'll be fine here. Give it a year. Hey guys, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, then you know my secret weapon to getting more done. And that's Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Well, apparently it's working for our audience too, because the Magic Mind team told me, Austin, we want to sponsor even more episodes of your amazing podcasts. Well, thank you, Magic Mind team, for supporting the podcast. But I'm not the only one that will be doing the thanking during this ad read. You know who else will be? Well, that will be you, of course, because you just ordered some Magic Mind. And you're going to be thanking yourself for how much smarter you feel after drinking this magical elixir. If you're looking for an edge over your competition, then this is the drink for you. Magic Mind is a nootropic shot of healthy, natural ingredients that help you decrease stress, boost blood flow, and keep you focused. See, when I first got my hands on Magic Mind, I won't lie, I didn't think it would work at all. Plus, it looked like one of those grassy vegan hippie drinks. But I was able to get over my ego and down the thing anyways. And since then, I haven't looked back. I've been taking Magic Mind on my normal work days, which is only Wednesday, of course. And instead of getting my normal two hours of work done, I feel like I've knocked out 40 hours. Imagine that, being 20 times more productive. Well, that could be you. Once you order your special case of these nootropic shots, all you have to do is go to magicmind.co forward slash millionaire. 
and use code MILLIONAIRE20 to get 20% off your order. Again, that's magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code MILLIONAIRE20 to get 20% off your order. Thank you for running this through your story. If it sounds fast, everybody too, like you said, it's come kind of full circle where you're talking about how you kind of had three companies, but again, it's all kind of using the same technology and whatnot. It's important to reflect and say, this is over 20 years of you building. It's evolution it's, and it, it takes time, right? It's not something that's going to happen obviously overnight. So you said you're in Denver, Colorado now too, as well, right? Yeah, we had a small office in Denver. I work out of my lake house in Monument. So Half the house here looks like a WeWork <laughs> facility. We got big eight by four right boards downstairs with a walk out to the lake. I'm in the Mission Control Center here, which has got computers and cameras and all kinds of right boards up here. So half the home is the business. And I got one kitchen and one bedroom that's mine <laughs> for personal use. Right. It's interesting because you're quite the mover too. You've moved all around the US, which is kind of interesting. I always find that kind of fun. But then also, as you walked us through your business life, reflecting, was there anything personal that you had to go through? I mean, we didn't talk about you potentially getting married or having kids or anything like that, but we just talked about your business. So how about personally? Was there anything else? I guess it's interesting to say that behind every successful entrepreneur is a surprised wife. My wife, of course, had come out of the mortgage industry. She was laid off in the recession in 2009. And instead of her going back to work, I said, why don't you do something for a software company? And uh, she did. So she started handling the little things like books, customer service. And without her, without having a strong spouse, I don't think I would be here because there were times that it was just so tough to get out of bed. And she'd literally just kind of take her cold feet, put them on my back. And that does it. Six in the morning, you get cold feet in your back. You jump out of bed real fast. I don't need any caffeine. And she would push me and she would do it in a very gentle and loving way. But I don't think you can be successful by yourself. You have friends, you have spouses, you have people who help you get there, whether it's starting a business, stopping smoking, or losing some weight. You have to have some help. Did you do those other two things as well? I don't smoke. Yep. And I did drop a ton of weight. <laughs> I dropped 108 pounds over the last, I don't know, 14 months with uh, the help of Dave Asprey. And I don't do fast food anymore, but I do a lot of fats from olive oils avocados, of course, and pescatarian. My diet now is primarily fish and vegetables and a little bit of fruit, but my brain is very healthy and it's operating at a level that I never thought I could operate at. So I can do a couple all-nighters if I need to from week to week, but I don't do as many as I used to, which is good. How much you weigh now? Down now to 297. Okay. Congrats on being able to lose that much weight. It just always shows no matter what, even business or personal, I mean, things get skewed one way or another, right? So obviously your personal life with your health and your eating wasn't too great, but it just proves that if you put your mind to it, no matter what, in something that you can make changes. So congrats on being able to do that. So I guess, yeah, thanks for coming on, sharing your story. If someone wanted to reach out and say, thank you for doing the podcast, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can reach me directly at uh, bart.wilson with one L at vpix360.com. Again, thanks for coming on. I did have a personal question. I've always wondered if you don't mind helping me figure this out because I got your LinkedIn profile here. Ready for the hard hitting question? The hard question. Why do people put their pronouns in their profile? Why do folks put pronouns in their profile? I don't know. Because you have he slash him in your profile. Yeah, I noticed that it's something that's designed with social media. 
Facebook has that now. It just kind of popped up. So he slash him, and I guess it might be because there's some folks out there with some very interesting first names, and I guess you can't figure out, well, gender, are they male, female, he slash him? It's not me putting it in there. It's actually the platforms. On LinkedIn, I don't have it on mine, and you have it on yours. That is weird, isn't it? I've heard that from three other people, and I don't know if that is... You didn't do that. So somebody, so You're saying that... Oh, no. Oh, what the fuck? That is... Okay. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. That is... Well, yeah, because that's what I was... I mean, then it doesn't really matter my hard-hitting question there. Anyhow, back to you, Bart. Thanks for coming in. And I guess if anyone's looking for you on LinkedIn, they have to look up Bart Lee Wilson, because I couldn't find you at first, right? But I guess you go by Bart. Yeah, Bartley on the birth certificate, but Bart to my friends and family. So yeah, it's easy to remember. I like single name, syllable names, easy to remember. <laughs> so Bart's easy. All right. Thank you, Bart, for coming on and sharing your story. You're welcome. I appreciate being here. Thank you very much. You looking for more tech-based interviews? If so, here's five more recommendations for you to check out. Try episode 198 with Jim Warner or episode 79 with Brad Martineau. Another one, episode 195 with Howard Gottlieb. Number four is episode 71 with Jordan Gal of Carthook. And last but not least, episode 180 with Diana Goodwin of Aquamobile. Oh, and if you feel like helping us keep this podcast going, then consider becoming a Patreon member. Hope you enjoy those tech-based interviews. And to become a Patreon member, just check your episode notes below.